Let's pray. Oh God, we come this morning to your word and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that you have preserved it for us even to this day that we might hear it read and understand the words that were read. But we cry out to you now, O oh God, and ask that you would give us more than human understanding, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things, that you would give us spiritual understanding, that you would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. O oh God, that you would make us more like Jesus. God, I pray for your people. I pray that their hearts would be receptive to your word. Or that you would minister grace upon grace unto them. And then, oh God, that you would help me, your servant, that you would protect me from error. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? Is it family? Is it friends? Some other relationship, perhaps? Maybe it's something material. Money. Inheritance. Property. Some, something, some possession that you have. Or maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a, a dream of something yet to come. A spouse, a child, a restful retirement. Maybe even the hope of being delivered from some affliction. What is your greatest treasure? In 1987, when we used to read newspapers... The Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a story about a man, a man named Rob Cutshaw. Rob is a self-proclaimed rock hound. What does that mean? It means that he spends his days hunting for precious stones, and then he takes them and sells them to jewelers and other collectors. He doesn't run an appraising business. He leaves the appraising up to the people He's selling to. He just enjoys finding rocks. And he just is happy to get some money to be able to pay his bills. Well, 20 years prior to this, so in the mid to late 60s, Rob was out rock hounding, I guess is how you say it. And he came across a rock that he described, and I quote, big and purdy. He liked it. He tried to sell the specimen, but he was unsuccessful. So he tucked it away in a closet somewhere, and he eventually forgot about it. Well, the reason this story ran when it did in 1987 is because one day, Rob decided to clean out that closet, and he found this rock. He said, well, I should try to sell it again. And he did. In fact, this rock is now not known just as big and purdy. It's called the Star of David Sapphire. Perhaps you've heard of it. You know what its value is? $2.7 million. $2.7 million. 
Now that's a treasure. Think about it. Tucked away, set aside, forgotten for all those years. But it was still a treasure. It was a treasure indeed. But that treasure pales in comparison to the kind of treasure that Asaph discovers in our psalm this morning. In fact, the treasure Asaph speaks of triumphs all other treasures this world has to offer, whether those treasures be people, things, or dreams. But just as Rob Cutshaw's sapphire was ignored and neglected for so many years. So this treasure, and what I would consider a most unfortunate tragedy, goes ignored and neglected today. Even by those, those of us, who have it in our grasp each and every moment of our lives. Well, we're going to focus on verses 25 and 26 This morning, I I do, however, want to take a moment and explain the context, the context of these verses, where they fit in with the rest of the psalm. So as many of you do, if you're taking notes, let's call this first point the context. That's original, I know, but the context will be our first point. So Psalm 73 as a psalm begins with an orientation, It begins with an orientation. Asaph, the author, he notes in verse 1 a timeless truth. Look there with me. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a really good starting point. It's a proper starting point, is it not? The goodness of God. The goodness of God. God's goodness is an eternal truth. It's an anchor For the soul of believers, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. These aren't just words. This is a truth. God is good. He's good to his people. He's good to those who are pure in heart. His goodness is a crown upon the head whose hearts have been made pure by him and made pure in him. His goodness is a crown to those who delight in him and walk in his covenant faithfulness. So this right away, we see Asaph's orientation. God is good. Then suddenly, suddenly in verse 2 and continuing through verse 15, we see a jarring disorientation. For when Asaph considered the wicked ones all around him, He says that his feet had almost stumbled, that his steps had nearly slipped. But why? Well, what he sees troubles him. What he sees bothers him. What he sees breaks up this paradigm that he has in his head. For if God is pure, I'm sorry, if God is good to those who are pure in heart, then they should be the ones who will prosper. Asaph's thinking is a lot like ours. If I'm good, then good things will happen to me. If I'm good, good things will follow. But instead, we look around like Asaph, and we see those who are impure in heart 
having good things happen to them. Asaph summarizes in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And this realization, this disorientation, brings Asaph to a bad place. Look at verse 13. All in vain. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Sounds familiar, right? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Perhaps you know this kind of disorientation. Perhaps in your own walk with the Lord, you've experienced some disorientation with the truth of his goodness. You've experienced bitterness. You've struggled. You've even suffered. You've sought to be faithful while watching unfaithful people thrive and prosper. Perhaps like Asaph, you compare your lot in life to all those around you, particularly those who are apart from Christ, and you conclude, just as he did, all in vain have I done this. All in vain. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, if you're anything like me, you've certainly felt that way before. Because I have. I think we all have. But please listen. When we do feel that way, when that disorientation kicks us upside the head, there remains a truth that we must grab a hold of. For as we continue in this psalm, we find that just as suddenly as Asaph moves from orientation to disorientation, he now comes to a reorientation. Look with me again at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, Asaph turns his eyes from the realities of this world to the sanctuary of God. He turns his eyes to heaven itself. And he considers the true reality of God and the true promises of God's word. He goes on to say that the end of the wicked is destruction, but the end of the righteous is glory. You see, though the wicked may prosper today, Asaph's conclusion and our conclusion is they will ultimately have all their earthly treasures stripped away. Look at verse 19. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And then look down at verse 27. Those who are far off from God shall perish. He will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him. But it will not be so for those who truly experience God's goodness. For even though they, or we might say we, will be afflicted in this life, Verses 23 and 24 remind us that even though we'll have all of our earthly possessions perhaps stripped away, nevertheless, look what it says. We are continually with God. God holds us by his hand. 
By our hand, he holds us. He guides us with his counsel. And one day, God will receive us to glory, to our heavenly reward. My friends, this is the reorientation that all of us need. This is the reorientation that each and every one of us needs. There are a lot of things in this world that so easily take our eyes off of heaven, that cause us like Asaph to envy the wicked, to lust after the things of this world, to compromise with the world, and even to doubt the very goodness of the God who saved us. There are many, 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 and I could say it many times, many things that cause us to neglect the greatest treasure we will ever know. The treasure that is right within our grasp each and every moment of each and every day. And so we come then to the climax of this great reorientation in verses 25 and 26. And with it, we're going to come to our second point this morning, and I'll call it the confession. The confession. Look with me again at these verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't it amazing what a glance toward heaven can do for our souls? Isn't it amazing? I mean, it can be discouraging to consider all that takes place in the world around us. Those of us who are in Christ can find inexpressible joy when we turn our eyes to our heavenly home. This is what's happened to Asaph. After considering the ways of the wicked, he turns himself toward heaven. And he confesses an eternal truth that must be on the lips of everyone who walks with God in this world. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing, absolutely nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing. Now that's quite a confession. That is quite a confession, but it's a fitting one. Think about it. When we compare the inexhaustible worth of God to any treasure here on earth, we must come to the exact same conclusion. Listen, he's not saying that the things of the earth are bad. He's not saying that. He's saying God is better, far better. He's saying that God's promises are better, far better. He's saying that the dwelling place of God is better than this earthly inheritance. Far, far, far better. I'm reminded of a story. It's a, a joke, so that tells you you have to laugh at the end. I'm reminded of the story of a rich man who was very sick and he was about to die. He was visited by an angel one night telling him it was time to go. It's time to go be with God in heaven. And he says, uh, can I just take some things with me? 
I'm very rich. I've got a lot of things and I'm sure heaven's gonna be great, but I just wanna take some stuff with me. And the angel's like, no, you can't do that. He's like, please, no, please, no. Finally, the angel gets worn down. He says, well, let me ask God. The angel goes and asks God and God says, sure. He can bring something to heaven with him, but it must fit in a suitcase. This guy's really smart, right? So right away, he's got 24 hours, he's told. He goes, he sells as much that he can. He liquidates his assets. He does all he can, invests it in gold bars, and fills this suitcase with gold bars. The time comes, the angel shows up, and he's like, I'm ready to go. So off they go to heaven. He gets to the gates, the pearly gates, and there's St. Peter. And Peter's like, whoa, wait a minute, you can't bring that in here. He goes, but I have permission from God. Let me check. He goes and checks. He comes back. Yeah, you can bring something in. But you know what? Can I see it first? Sure. So he takes a suitcase. He lays it in front of Peter. He opens it up. And Peter looks at it and goes, huh. He's perplexed. He's like, you brought pavement? Why did you bring pavement with you to heaven? Pavement. You see, the treasures of this earth pale in comparison to the inexhaustible worth of God and the heavenly inheritance that we have in him. Not only will the streets of heaven be paved with our most precious of earthly metals like gold, but listen, all of our soul's deepest longings will be eternally satisfied as we worship God forever and ever in his presence. This is what captivated Asaph. This is what caused him to reorient himself to heaven. For what else? What else could cause him to say, my flesh and my heart may fail. I might waste away in this body. I might even suffer mightily on this earth. But even so, you, God, you and you alone, only you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want you to know that when a Hebrew would hear the word portion, several things would come to their mind, but the foremost would be inheritance. For if you remember, the promised land was portioned out among the people so that each would have an inheritance of land. This was precious to them. Yet even so, the reality of a greater inheritance is what captivates the soul of Asaph. For this earthly promised land is but a type and a shadow of heaven, the true promised land that could truly satisfy his soul. So he confesses, you, God, you alone, just you. As Austin sang so well earlier, God, you are my life. God, you are my love, you are my reason, you are my hope, you are my joy, you are my passion, you are my all in all. What a beautiful confession. Do you know this confession? Is this your confession? Are these words to be found on your lips? Is God alone? Father, Son, Holy Spirit is God himself the greatest treasure in all your life.
I want to draw our time together in the word this morning to a close with our final point. It's another C. I know you're surprised. It's the call. The call. The context, the confession, the call. I want to call you to see God himself as the greatest treasure in your life. But first, I want to emphasize that my goal this morning is not to call you to devalue the things that are important or the things that are precious to you. That's not my call. My call is for you to see them in a different light. To see that they pale in comparison to the real greatest treasure that you have. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're walking with Jesus... If you're walking with God the Father through the great salvation you have in his Son, by the strength given to you by his Spirit, God is your greatest treasure. There's no debate. God is your greatest treasure. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is as valuable than him. So let me form this call by drawing your minds to three other passages of Scripture. They're familiar to you, but let me draw your minds to these three. First is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Our Lord Jesus says, and it's recorded, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This passage speaks to the priority, the priority in our call to treasure God above all things. For as good and even godly the things of this world may be, We have to ask, do these things reveal that our hearts are fixed on heaven more than they are on earth? Let me ask it this way. It hurts to ask myself this. If you were to do an audit, if you were to do an audit of your possessions, of your relationships, of your time, of your checkbook, Would you clearly see that God is your greatest priority in this life? That you treasure God above all things? Second passage I want to draw you to is Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This verse speaks to our investment, to our investment in the treasure that God is. Not only is our relationship with him our priority, but how we steward the things of this world will demonstrate that all of it must be forsaken if it means that we're going to lose him. You see, we may have nice things. 
We may enjoy deep and meaningful relationships, and we may even be able to pass on the greatest inheritance to our children and their children. But does our life reveal the way we live for Christ? Does it reveal that these things are taking a back seat to the surpassing worth of knowing God through Jesus Christ? Another way to ask this, and this one hurts, to ask myself, are we willing to give all of it up so that we can gain Christ? Are we willing to give all of it up in order to gain Christ? Many have. Many have. Many will be asked to give it all up to gain Christ, to continue to serve and live for him. Our last passage is Matthew 13, 44. Here our Lord Jesus says, and it's recorded for us, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And it's this passage that brings everything together. Let me ask you this question. How much joy, how much joy do you find in knowing God through Jesus Christ and participating in his kingdom. How much joy does that bring you? Many of you know the author J.C. Ryle. He wrote a book, and I commend it to you. It's a book on Christian happiness. And he says it well. He writes this, and I quote, The plain truth is that without Christ... There is no happiness in this world. He is the sun. Without him, men never feel warm. He is the light. Without him, men are always in the dark. He is the bread. Without him, men are always starving. He is the living water. Without him, people are always thirsty. Continuing in his quote, he says... Give them what you like. Place them where you please. Surround them with all the comforts you can imagine. It makes no difference. Separate from Christ, a man cannot be happy. To paraphrase, separate from Christ, there's no true and everlasting joy. My prayer that I've prayed for myself as I visited this verse again this week. My, my prayer for each and every one of you, for all of us, is that we will live as though God is indeed truly our greatest treasure. That he is the one who satisfies our souls. That he is the one who fills us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I hope that no matter what our experience is on this earth, no matter what we are able to gain or lose in this life, that all of us can enjoy the same reorientation that Asaph did and that we can join our voices with his. And resoundingly, we can say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God and God alone is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and ever. Amen.
and amen.